One of the many possible ways to describe a life would be as a series of encounters with various bodies of water. Time spent in, on, under, or near water, interspersed with the periods spent thinking about where, when, and how to reach it next. My first body of water, of course, was experienced as a zygote in my mother's womb, and the last, at least as I now imagine it, will be in the form of ashes, cast over the Pacific. In between, I've been fascinated by, and privileged to, know many ponds, tanks, rivers, bottles, pools, lakes, streams, buckets, waterfalls, quarries, tubs, mists, oceans, downpours, and puddles. Those were a few lines from the book Blue Mind by Dr. Wallace J. Nichols, which is now up on my book club. You can head over to my website, kyle.surf, and click the book club section to check out what kinds of books I've been reading. I'm also an Amazon affiliate, which means that if you buy any of those books through the Amazon link or click the link at the top of the book club club, blah, 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 club page to buy anything on Amazon, I get a small percentage of that purchase at no cost to you. It's a really easy way to support me, and it doesn't cost you anything. Thank you to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. If you can donate a few bucks, head over to my website, kyle.surf, and click the Patreon link. One thing that you won't find on this podcast are advertisements, and that is because of patrons like you. This conversation is with Taylor White. Taylor White is a UC Santa Cruz graduate researcher on track to get her PhD and is doing dive research on the population dynamics of pinto abalone in southeast Alaska. She works closely with the Sitka Sound Science Center and Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Abalone are are a really cool animal. I've had the chance to go up to Mendocino a few times and dive for red abalone, which recently became became illegal because their populations have been dropping off. So we talk a lot about that in this podcast. And uh, she knows her stuff. I love talking to specialists. I always think about, you know, in another life, doing it all over again and becoming an oceanographer or biologist or entomologist, people who can explain the world more deeply um, are always really interesting with me, and uh, I love the conversation. So without further ado, please welcome to the podcast, Taylor White. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. I haven't talked to you since, here we go, I haven't talked to you much about your last uh, ab-tagging trip to Alaska, and I wanted to hear about how that last trip went for you. Well, it was mostly a trip involving a bunch of undergrads doing their research, and I didn't actually get any ab-tagging in, which was too bad, but they were looking for some of my tagged abalone from this last summer, and I was so sad they found none of them but we tagged over 200 abalone and a few other divers back in December found abalone on the transects that we were tagging and so that was promising and I was really hoping that we'd find them but I just think that search image for the students wasn't there that or every single tag fell off which I would be surprised by or the abalone are just really mobile and I have found that they've moved 27 meters in three days. These little guys are really, really mobile, at least the species in Alaska. So what does it look like when you are up there tagging abalone? What does a a day in your life up there um, really look like? Well, depending on whether it's winter or summer, and we tag mostly in the summer because you get longer days. So it's really long dives, and we basically pre-make these little, they almost look like little cookies with um, bee tags, and bee tags are two millimeters big so we wanted to make them a little bit bigger surface area for us with our gloves underwater it's pretty cold still in the summer there we're in dry suits so suiting up getting all the tanks into a little inflatable boat and maybe putting out 45 minutes to these dive sites that were 
Um, some were randomly selected and some were no good abalone habitat. And we would go and probably do two hour long dives at each site in a grid. So we'd set up a grid underwater with a transect tape. And what's transect tape? Oh, it's um, it's basically like meter tape. So it sort of has the delineation of how far away from the beginning you are. And so it's a nice way to like mark where where the abalone are. And sure. I make like a grid underwater. So there's like multiple ways of using transect tape. But I like to make the grid because then you can figure out how far away each abalone are from each other. And that's really important for understanding um, their sort of reproductive potential because they need to be close because they're broadcast spawners. And so they release their sperm and eggs into the water. And if they aren't close enough, then that is pointless. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, same as uh, coral reefs. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh-huh. Broadcast right. spawning. Yeah. So Zanthelli. And then you will tag an abalone and what will... Um, what kind of information are you are you looking for when you do that? Yeah, um, I am looking mostly, just this last year, I've been looking at growth rates and whether they're the same. I really want to compare it, whether they're the same across different areas with different predation pressures. So do abalone grow faster where there are sea otters or slower where there are sea otters? And it was all started by this um, this dive that I did in with Alaska Department of Fish and Game in Mears Pass next to Craig, Alaska, which is in Prince of Wales. So that's southern southeast Alaska. And I saw these little abalone spawning, and they were much smaller than an abalone that I would normally expect to spawn. And they are in an area of like high-density sea otters. So I was wondering, is it because there are so many sea otters that they need to spawn at smaller sizes? They can't grow to the size that is so big where they can't like physically hide away from sea otters so is it a life history trait like them spawning earlier or at a smaller size that has changed um in high density areas of sea otters so that was one of my big questions is do they grow differently in different areas of predation and sea otters are the main predator of abalones they're one of the predators okay. so they're kind of the like the characteristically known predator they eat a lot in general. So they eat a three times their body weight every single day. And Whoa. everyone, yeah, everyone loves them. They're really crazy and interesting and beautiful and cool, but they definitely are voracious predators on a lot of things. So on crabs, on cucumbers, on urchins, urchins are, urchins and crabs are pretty much what they go for first when they get into an area. But if there's a big abalone out and exposed, that's a bunch of meat, a bunch of protein. And it, if it's, if the cost is not too high to go collect them, as in like if they're not hidden in cracks and crevices and they're not having to do long dives to find these, then of course they're going to pick off abalone too. So, so uh, this year, uh, recreational ab diving up north of the Golden Gate Bridge um, was uh, was banned. Is that correct? Yeah. They so they've de they've stopped it indefinitely. Indefinitely. Mm -hmm. So last year I went on a couple ab dives up yeah. up there had a blast um such a fascinating creature and i know that a big discussion happening up there is whether or not to reintroduce otters um can you tell me a little bit about that conflict that's happening right now i can't speak as much for california but um I mean, I work in an area with an otter gradient where otters were totally removed by the Russians in Russian America back in the late 1880s. And they've reintroduced otters into the sound. And that has been a big, um, easy, easy blame for the shellfish industry going just down, like in number and and abalone fishery closure. The big blame was like, oh, sea otters were reintroduced to the area. It was their fault. But to be realistic, it's sort of insult to injury. We were fishing the, the abalone um, pretty intensely, and then and then otters moved into the area. So the abalone were just really impacted hard by both of these things. And I can get how that would be um, not welcome, otters moving into sort of Mendocino area. But they are also kind of encouraged to do that. Um, otters eat urchins and urchins eat kelp and when otters so the, one of the big problems right now in Mendocino is that the kelp has died back a lot 
um, based on El Nino back in 2015. There was a big um, heat event and a lot of storms ripping out kelp. And when the kelp is warmer, it can't maintain its nitrogen loads. It's basically really detrimental for kelp to to be in an El Nino cycle. And um, on top of that, there are no um, there are no otters eating the urchins. So urchins would eat the remaining kelp. And on top of that, in 2014, there was sea star wasting disease. Do you, do you know about sea star wasting disease? No, tell me about it. It's sort of unfortunate. And this is just a long winding story, but yeah, it's but, but getting to back fin- to sure. it. And to finish the, that mm-hmm. that cycle and the abalone eat the kelp. Abalone eat the kelp, So yes. there's no uh, food for the abalone to eat and they die as a result of this, mm-hmm. this cascading event, uh, yes. cascading series of events. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, so CSR w- wasting disease. Yes, back into it. I know it's, uh, it's this is going to be a very tangential conversation. Don't <laughs> worry, okay. we're going to go all over the place, but it's fascinating stuff. Great, yeah, because it is it is a very tangled web, and it's so it's really hard to just point to one thing and be like it's the sea otter's fault because it's it's a lot of things that are interacting with each other. But sea star wasting disease, um, nobody really one hundred percent knows what it is besides the fact that it's um, a denzovirus that's getting into these. Um, sea stars by some means and we just don't know it's it's sort of like I like to think of it as like staph is on all of us right like staph you can get a staph infection but the normal healthy person doesn't get a staph infection so what is the cause of these sea stars getting sick we don't know this is a normal virus that is always on them and I and other scientists are unable to really determine what the sort of incident is that allows them for to be infected and basically crawl apart from their own bodies and disintegrate and it's really nasty and i i first encountered it in sick alaska in 2014 it was about a year after it kind of started to hit the um pacific coast uh, pacific west coast and it was really sad i'd walk into the aquarium every day and i was working there as the aquarium manager at the sick sound science center and just pulling dead rotting sea stars out of the tanks and we had a flow through system so what was happening out in the ocean was happening in the aquarium and it was it was pretty upsetting so uh long story short sea stars are really important also for abalone urchins and all of that they're voracious predators and um with sea sea stars absent we had more and more baby urchins more and more baby abalone too hopefully but so sea stars eat urchins Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so um, with sea stars gone, you get more urchins with otters gone or just not making it north to Mendocino area um, because of some people like to credit sharks for that. Some people just think that they don't move um, quite as much as we would hope they would move and colonize or not as fast, at least down here. They're they're kind of colonizing it at a pretty quick rate in Alaska, southeast. They're doing well. But yeah, so all of that allowed for urchins to really take over take over okay and become this urchin baron and eat away at kelp and that and, is and isn't urchin baron uh what you see when there's the blanket of urchins covering the shoreline and into the ocean yeah yeah okay. so and urchins are crazy creatures they can kind of live for a really long time really um i mean a very very long time like over 80 years and they can actually just eat away at their own shell and sort of become these zombie creatures until, you know, the next giant kelp spore settles and then they're on it, you know, and they'll just take they'll take away all their energy from making um, gonads and just put it into surviving. So um, that also makes them, what are gonads? Oh, um, they're they're sort of sex organs. So um, that's the sort of protein. That's what a lot of people eat when they eat urchins, um, okay. which is just sometimes urchins can be just filled with gonads but urchins that are starving and barrens are just completely empty of gonads which also makes them not a really amazing food for things like sea otter got you so so how does an urchin breed um they are also broadcast spawners okay yeah so they just release their um sperm and eggs into the water and then those settle out usually under the spines of other urchins because they're protected and then you've got a bunch of baby urchins and when there aren't sea otters and when there aren't sea stars to eat them 
they are they're well on their way to becoming an urchin baron. Do their uh, sperm and eggs float up to the surface like uh, coral reefs do, and then find each other on a certain night and um, and and procreate that way? I actually don't know the specifics of the urchin. How the how the ma- male system. finds the female. Uh, yeah, I actually don't know. So fascinating. Yeah. When I was learning about coral reefs, the, f- the fact that many coral reefs all on the same night will, will release sperm and eggs, and those sperm and eggs will float around for days on end on the top of the surface. And a friend of mine who's a, uh, an oceanographer said that you know, when you see that kind of milky texture sometimes on the surface of the ocean, that can be coral sperm and egg trying to find each other which is so fascinating to think about the fact that a coral reef is an animal oh yeah yeah and the timing of that too is really it has to be precise right because if you mistime it then you're out of luck and I think for abalone at least which is what I'm more focused on in terms of um, my research as um, a grad student here at UC Santa Cruz I focus on their reproductive behavior, their repro- just the reproduction. And it's kind of the biggest problem with abalone is that they're quite particular and they might not time it all that well, um, or they'll time it and there won't be the right sex ratio. So the thing about abalone is that they're male abalone and they're female abalone. It's like going out to a bar on a Monday night. <laughs> yeah. They, they make Where they- are all the chicks, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. I thought it was a Friday. Damn it, I wore my nice shirt tonight. It is, yeah, yes, exactly. And they they are very particular for that because they're male and female and they need to be within a certain distance from each other and there's, there needs to be coral and algae. It's just very, like, they're very particular. Like, no way, you're Catholic too? Yeah, we should totally hang out. That's great. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So <laughs> I only date Catholics, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, all abalone are also Catholic. <laughs> um, and how does the hardening of the shell happen? That is one of the most mes- mesmerizing features of the abalone. When when I think about abalone, when I've d- uh, dove for abalone, the meat tastes um, tastes great, but then also to shine the shell and get that rainbow yeah. shimmer from from it. Um, I've never understood how why those colors um, appear. How, how does that happen? I actually, that is some magic that I don't quite understand. I mean, I know there's a science behind it. It's calcite and aragonite, but how it creates that particular like mother of pearl sheen that everyone loves and has been culturally important for thousands of years. And definitely, how, so, how has it been culturally important? Uh, a lot of different cultures you have used it in their, um, their art historically. So I know mostly about the Clinket and Haida people, which live in Southeast Alaska and Clinket literally means people of the tide. And there's a saying that when the tide is out, the table is set and they would go out to low tide and collect and still people today. And this is why it's still very culturally important. Um, and I just growing up would go out and you just, you'd grab what you find intertidally. And I would often see abalone or abalone shells, which were the most appealing to me as a kid, cause they were super shiny and awesome. And, um, but going back into, um, how it's important culturally used in artwork and it was a big trading point. So actually a lot of the clinket pieces that are in the museums or that people use still today, um, whether it's in a headdress or, um, or necklaces, it's actually California abalone, which is fairly interesting. They would more just eat the pinto abalone because our abalone are a lot smaller in Alaska. It's just a different species. Um, and the California abalone are large shells that are really beautiful, crazy colored. And I don't know how that is, but it's pretty awesome. And, uh, those big shells were much more useful for making headdresses out of and um and using as beads or buttons and so they would trade and so they were big on trading and that was kind of a a currency in a way too and is it true that the red abalone in california are the largest in the world i want to say yes but i am i I I remember hearing that somewhere but so the ones up in sitka are smaller abs yeah okay so pinto abalone range from like just north of sitka which is like central southeast alaska and they go all the way to point conception and then they it's debatable but they there is a there's a different 
species they look pretty much the same um that goes all the way to baja california and um so they have a huge range as a species but they're the smallest abalone um on this coast and because they are that is not that like commercially wanted you know when you have your red abalone which can get what like 12 inches huge um and pinto abalone sort of average around like four inches is pretty big actually now um so that's like a big abalone most of the ones we're seeing out there are around like 60 um oh so uh 60 millimeters so not even that's like like two inches so not not that crazy big at all and that makes them also really mobile they're able to move really fast they have lighter shells um they are still beautiful. That's so crazy. What what was the stat you said about uh, how quickly an abalone can move over a few days? Yeah, well, I just found this because of tagging. So getting back to tagging, I do it to see where they're moving within my grid underwater. And I found one I just was doing for fun to see if I could find any way outside of my grid. I went pretty far outside, like 30 meters outside of my grid. And I saw one at 27 meters away from my grid that had just booked it like within three days. How do they book it? <laughs> they have how does that one, muscle. How does one abalone book it? <laughs> right. Yeah, I, picture it think... mo- I picture it moonwalking or maybe like a big hop, like, ugh. <laughs> all right, again. Uh, uh. All right, again. <laughs> Must make it to the Monday bar <laughs> on the other side of the cove. Yeah, the abalone, that, that foot that they, they use, and they basically walk sort of similar. I want to say it's kind of like a... Like that thing you do with your belly, <laughs> like when you like, can like move it in and out. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's, it's almost like that, um, but it's a giant muscle. Some, some belly dancing. Some, they belly dance. They their belly way dance their way. I will now think of that every single time I see one moving on the floor. It's just belly dancing. Yeah, um, you know, some people are into the the horrible uh, sport of cockfighting. But what I like to do is I get an abalone and a snail next to each other, and I just bet on one or the other. I'm like, go abalone, belly dance your way to the finish line. Come on, buddy. They also do twists, so they're really awesome. They um, and I would show this at the aquarium all the time because people see abalone and they're just like, okay, cool. Like they don't even they don't even necessarily think snail, but they're they're a snail and. They're, you know, pretty nondescript on the surface. Like when you're just looking down at them, they're cryptic. They're supposed to sort of blend into their environment. So, you know, uh, you're the average tourist that we got in there was not particularly impressed with abalone. So I'd have to kind of show off a little bit. And um, the best way to do that was to take a sea star, a picnopodia in particular, these sunflower stars with tons of legs. Um, they are the big predator of abalone and they send a chemical cue when they're in an area to an abalone to like, oh, shoot like I have to get out of here now and so what will happen is I will I'll put the sea star right there and the abalone will just literally get up almost like out of its shell but it'll it shell will move up and just shift and twist um multiple times and then it'll start booking it doing the belly dance away wow so that's an effective way to get an ab up is just to put a sea star on top of it yeah and actually that is one of the methods that i use when i'm tagging abalone so when i tag the abs if i can find sea stars it's really hard to find them now which is sad but they are coming back which is also great and um i can put a sea star next to the abalone and it'll hop up off the rock and i can get it safely because they're hemophiliacs so um it's always hilarious to read the old papers where people were doing densities of abalone, like old Alaska Department of Fish and Game papers, old like ones from Canada where people were using like abalone irons to get these abalone off the rocks. And that's just basically, a, it looks like a giant knife, basically. It's not sharpened at all, but it will cut into the abalone and every abalone that is cut severely enough will bleed to death. So it's like all these surveys that are trying to help with the health of abalone are killing a bunch of abalone like because it cuts unintentionally cuts them and then they bleed to death yeah yeah that was one of the early lessons that i got when i first started to ab dive um because when you ab dive it's important not to touch the abalone before you choose the right one that you're going to get so you you go down you dive and you have a an ab gauge to make sure that it's of legal limit um and then you have an ab iron in your other hand um, and if, if you touch the abalone at all, it will lock down on that rock like a vice 
and it's nearly impossible to get it off. So like what I would do is I would dive down and I would barely just see if it was big enough with the ab gauge and then if it was big enough yeah. go down behind it with the ab iron and quickly get up under it and pop it off yeah that muscle um, is impossible otherwise but it's important to choose the right one because mm-hmm. if i were to pop it off on the on the wrong one i'm killing an abalone and then not um not harvesting from it. that yeah exactly mm-hmm. yeah that is a that is something that i would love for folks who do harvest pinto abalone to use something like um some sort of sizer to take with them is always it's always really helpful for that same reason but also you could use sea stars and help help yourself out a little bit and get them moving and up and off the rock and it's no problem to grab them so you were exposed to abalone um at an early age growing up in Sitka Alaska Um, when did you decide that you wanted to make studying this creature a main focus of your life Yeah, it was sort of happenstance in that I was working at the Sika Sound Science Center, which I had been working at since I was in high school. And now I'm coming up on my 11th summer going back there, which is awesome uh, that they're still going. And that's where our field corridor just was for all these undergrads at UC Santa Cruz. Blast from the past. Yeah, I know. It was great. And just, yeah, in the classrooms that I helped tidy up back in the day. But uh, yeah, so it was one of the projects we do a lot of a variety of projects we were doing all this long-term monitoring with sea star wasting coming in and then uh, Alaska Department of Fish and Game and actually the Coast Guard uh, we got together and wrote a grant to do some basic kelp forest surveys and so sort of understanding kelp forest densities and shifts in those and also there's a big abalone component to that and that was just diving transects and getting densities and Alaska Department of Fish and Game signed on because they had um, really interested divers. You know, the history of management of the abalone fisheries was not so hot. So I think there was some pressure there, too, to like, hey, let's see how many there at least are now. Because there was no baseline before even the fisheries started for abalone. I've had a few uh, marine biologists and oceanographers on this podcast before. And a theme with all of them is that look, the ocean is so big that in many cases we just don't have the data. So the first step to um, gaining more control over over this issue is just going out and having the knowledge of how many fish we have, how many abalone we have, and then having that baseline, we can figure out the next steps to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were out there basically diving transects in really remote locations. And these were just these meter tapes again, just strung out on the bottom, counting abalone, how many, um, which is like an okay estimate for abalone. It's just like a really sort of crude number, an idea of what's out there. And we just wanted to at least get that. And so that's where it started. And then with my um, advisor, who is actually up there working with me on a bunch of intertidal work, um, he's now my advisor. Then he had suggested that maybe I start going to grad school because this I was so interested in this and it just kind of worked out that I could come into Santa Cruz and when it gets kind of nasty in Alaska and then go back to Alaska when it's kind of nice and I was like this is not a bad deal so I um and just growing up and watching abalone basically disappear from the shoreline I had this connection to um, abalone sort of from a young age and I would free dive for it in high school and um, I'd still free dive for it in college and it was sort of a integral part of my life so to kind of get to know from a science perspective this creature that I've known growing up was definitely um, yeah a reason why I'm I'm here today. You grew up free diving in high school? Yeah yeah. fishing. I wasn't spearfishing so much. It was actually a lot of invert collection, which was nice. And that is what also got me into the aquarium because I would have to collect for the aquarium. And then, oh, I'd grab some like rock scallops on the side and like maybe some cucumbers and we do like a sushi night. And that was really fun. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think also just growing up in Southeast Alaska, you learn a lot about living off of the land in, in ways that, um, I'm really thankful for. And things like eating sea cucumber, things I wouldn't have thought of really being enticing. I now 
am sad because I'm a California resident. I can't actually collect these things anymore. So I, it is very, um, yeah, these, these, these little inverts are near and dear to my heart because I've kept them in tanks and I've eaten them and they are incredibly amazing creatures and just not a lot is known on them. So getting that baseline for me, was huge. You said that, um, kelp is a main factor in the health of ecosystems. Um, and as a surfer, I hate kelp. Um, <laughs> as a free diver, I hate yeah. kelp. <laughs> no, it's fair. But, uh, kelp forests. They are forests and ecosystems live in forests. Um, you said earlier that um, one of the reasons for kelp depletion was the warming of the water. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how that works? You said that the, the kelp lose, was it nitrogen or? Their ability to um, basically maintain nitrogen stores. So like any um, algae or these, this is an algae, but any like plant has some storage of sugars and, and things that it needs and nutrients that it needs. And, um, when it, when kelp is warm, it is, is stressed and can't contain all of these nutrients that it needs. So things like nitrogen, which is basically its main limiting, um, nutrient, um, it, that it needs to grow is uh, lost. Does ocean acidification have anything to do with kelp depletion? No, actually what's pretty cool is that kelp forests are actually only going to help buffer out ocean acidification so because kelp is similar in the fact that it does photosynthesis right so just like a forest um makes co2 into oxygen yeah pl so please break this down for this me you, you, can, you cannot go slowly enough okay. for me <laughs> no it's great but I'm, I'm really fascinated i should also go this. slow about it because it is it is so um so important right now and it's a big topic of conversation and the effects of it are already being felt by oyster farms by basically um yeah crab fisheries so it's really important and kelp forests have a really interesting role in it because they're not often talked about um kelp forests eelgrass beds uh, anything that is photosynthesizing in the ocean is sort of helping buffer out the co2 so just like trees um when there's co2 in the environment they um, make it into oxygen based on their photosynthesis photosynthesis right so that's just them creating energy and and so it's awesome because kelp do that too and they basically make more oxygen and they not only do that but they can use um they actually pair co2 and uh, bicarbonate which is a byproduct of co2 mixing with water um and when co2 mixes with water it creates a lot of bicarbonate a lot of um hydrogen ions and hydrogen ions are positive and a lot of those basically are what is creating this um more positive environment, this more acidic environment. And, um, long story short, uh, no, 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 no just okay. keep, this I'll is keep great. Going. Just keep going. Okay. So, so what I have so far okay. is that CO2 mixes with water, mm -hmm. which creates bicarbonate, mm -hmm. which is, which has positive ions in it. Bicarbonate, I, I think is actually negatively charged. Okay. Um, hydrogen ions are positive. And so that dissociates those two would otherwise be together and um the water dissociates yes okay um, well <laughs> i want to make it as simple as possible yeah. but without getting too crazy it's it's basically what i wanted to say about kelp is it's really cool because it it converts CO, not only co2 into oxygen but it actually removes um these bicarbonate ions which are created by the co2 mixing into the water and that is helping with ocean acidification. Okay. And ocean acidification is is the result of CO2 uh, going into the water, creating this process. And what happens to kelp and ecosystems as the result uh, resulting from ocean acidification? Because that's a, this buzzword that right. I hear all the time, but when what is it you know yeah at gunpoint i couldn't really tell you what yeah. ocean acidification is the ocean is getting acidic yeah. it's, it's acid like, it's bad god don't you know i know i think of like acid rain and i'm just like oh my gosh this is gonna burn people alive well it's sort of it's sort of a similar concept it's 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 basically yeah increasing co2 in the atmosphere means 
more of it is mixing in the oceans. And it's, it's crazy because you don't think of CO2 as mixing, but it mixes and it not only mixes, but it um, basically is it, the, the oceans are trying to fix this, the CO2 mixing, they buffer out um, any acidity. So they're trying, the ocean has calcium and carbonate in it. And um, calcium carbonate is what happens to make shells. It's what happens to make uh, different corals, uh, things we like to eat, like crabs and abalone. And um, so that calcium carbonate is actually used in buffering out all of these, um, these positive ions that are dissociated. Long, yeah. I, I, I want to not great. make it this, too no, complicated. No, no, it's great. Just keep, keep going. Okay. I'm, I'm following you so far. Yeah. So the, the ocean has to buffer this out in order to not let the acidity rise too high, um, and so it uses its um, carbonate ions to do that. And carbonate ions are hugely important for shell building creatures, and so that's that's pretty bad news for a lot of abalone and things like that. And carbonate ions are really hard to get into the ocean system. So they're sort of a, it's a long process of like rocks, um, sort of being worked away at. And so it's a, it's not an easy thing to come by. It's not like you can just throw a bunch, you can't just like the oceans can't get a bunch of carbonate. Right. So it's, it's really, um, a slow process to get more carbonate. And so you What's said, happening you, faster? You said part part of the reason, uh, part of uh, the the process is rocks being eaten away at. Is that? Yeah. So that's part of the what creates calcium carbonate. I want to make sure that I'm being clear on it. But like, uh, you're yeah no okay. you're doing a good job. I'm I'm following you. This is great. We're doing I'm, the I'm deep like, science it's like, version. It's great. It's like I'm hanging on to the back of the jet ski and it's like. Brr! going over waves i'm like i'm still with you here we are because i can my do... driver's like okay he's still back there I'm like, Seth's coming that is so scary and so true and that's how that's how i feel about ocean vacation and that's why it's hard because you want to break it down in an easier way easier to consume way and that is just um, no, but it's it's pe- just complicated. People who listen to this podcast are smart. They're engaged. <laughs> they have great taste, and Obviously. they're fascinated. So keep going. Okay. Well, where do I continue? We yeah. We're so so, so um, why ocean acidification is bad news for uh, creatures that require calcium carbonate like abalone. Yeah. So ocean acidification, increase in CO2 in the atmosphere means increase in CO2 in the water, which dissociates into different ions that make um, the ocean more acidic. And the problem with it is that calcium carbonate ions are necessary for both shell building and buffering out the acidity in the ocean. And so when the ocean uses calcium, carbonate ions in particular to buffer out the acidity increases in the ocean um, because it wants to maintain a more level um, pH in the whole ocean so that its creatures can survive right as if and maybe the ocean has a plan like this no but it's just it's sort of a natural process of chemistry and in doing that it takes away these carbonate ions from shell builders so Things like as simple as these little butterflies of the sea, these pteropods, which build little shells and are 75% of the diet of uh, pink salmon to abalone, which need oregani and calcite, which um, use carbonate ions to build their shells. So it's, it's a complex sort of chemical equation, but when you break it down into the ocean is buffering out this increase in CO2 that is coming in, um, and it requires that it takes away the resources of shell builders, then you kind of understand like, uh, and this resource for shell builders is, is not an easy renewable resource. It's a slow process of rocks, like, um, basically, uh, what do you call that? Like, not when they're withering, the rocks are wither away, but like wearing of rocks sure, and, sure. um, it's a slow process basically. So when I was uh, doing my my doc on coral reefs and the impacts that um, 
that wild pigs and hooved ungulates have on coral reefs through land erosion, which flows out, the, the loose soil flows out into the ocean and suffocates the coral. One of the main um, takeaways for me is that um, it's not just hooved ungulates that are killing coral. It's not just climate change. It's not just um, human waste. It's this combination of a lot of these factors. And whatever we can do from land ba- regarding land-based impacts to supplement the health of ecosystems, um, we should do it in the face of climate change, in the face of, um, of uh, uh, ecosystems in flux. So is there anything that we can be doing to support abalone populations from land um, as they're in the face of, of, um, of a lot of this change? Of ocean acidification? Yeah. Ooh. Um, a lot of it has to do with, well, the the future for abalone is basically whether or not they can build their shells. And uh, that's not actually a future that I'm working so seriously with right now, but it is a serious future for them. So that, it, that has to do with differences, like CO2 emissions is basically what it comes down to. And... Um, but there's yeah. no little like ab protein powder. We can, protein. we can, you know, it's, yeah, it's like, you know, I was, I was low on my protein powder. So I put it into a, a milkshake and now I'm, I'm feeling the swelling of the guns. Like we can't do that for abalone. It's not um, as simple as that. Yeah. There are lots of different types of like <laughs> geoengineering ideas out there. Yeah. I'm not as for that as, um, right now, just at this stage, protecting the, younger abalone populations letting them grow to be old enough to spawn and create more populations that's the bigger concern for me right now because if they can't even reproduce right now then their their somewhat scary future isn't even an option for them so that's where we're at is just figuring out where we can maintain a sort of viable population to you know at least experience that future which is kind of also upsetting but um but also with climate change in general, like it isn't just one thing and it isn't just, um, it isn't solely just, um, humans making this change sure. anymore. Um, the fact that the temperatures are increasing, it's really interesting in, in warmer areas, the water absorbs less CO2. So there's some sort of like reverse, um, things that climate change in general, um, has an effect on in colder water, um, in fresher water, more CO2 is absorbed. So where there are going to be ice caps that are melting, there will be more CO2 absorbed. So this is more serious, um, ocean acidification is more relations and, and again, less trying to think about their sort of ominous future. But, uh, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not an oceanographer, Mm. just a population biologist. Okay. Um, but I think, I mean, yeah, I don't know. No problem. No, thank you. <laughs> but I, lo- it's fair. I, I love it when people say I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, do you, is this something that you can see yourself being in for a long time? I mean, it's it's uh, it's kind of sad. Yeah, I was. I mean, I was an environmental studies major in undergrad, and that was so sad. And then I picked up a a species <laughs> in decline, and it's sort of upsetting. But it is also kind of you know there there are upticks too. And within my lifetime, it would be just cool to see um, if we can get a sustainable fisheries on abalone at all and across the world. It's been a very boom bust pattern of like abalone are being way overfished and not bouncing back. Um, it'd be really cool to see a population bounce back. And I think that's what keeps a lot of, uh, resource managers going and just, are there stories of populations bouncing back? Bounce is maybe a hard, yeah, 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 definitely like a hard term. Maybe like a, like a belly dance. Yeah. (laughs) They belly dance on back that would, yeah, no, not particularly with abalone. There are situations where fisheries are closed and abalone maintain basically, um, and carry on at very low densities and probably won't shift in density unless something drastic happens. Like we kill all of the sea otters like we did in the 1880s. Um, so, which is what happened in Southeast Alaska. And that's why the shellfish fishery really like took off is what we think. And, and then sea otters came back and humans. And so, you know, you can, you can kind of swing it a lot of different ways, but it just depends on which creature you care for a lot, you know, (laughs) 
And um, and if we and if we care for abalone, it's just it might just be a management of no fish. It might be a management of very minimal fishing or just personal use, uh, like there is right now. There's like a five per day limit in Southeast Alaska just for Alaskan citizens, and within a particular uh, range, age range, size range, uh, that is allowing the abalone to at least reproduce hopefully a couple of times before they're collected. So just, I think it's just, if it's an interesting science because not a lot was known on this species in terms of their reproduction and still not a lot is known. So it's kind of just like a fun frontier to be a part of, um, even considering the like sad history of it, but to know that they didn't know all these things and, and the abalone are still around and like maybe we can find a good future for abalone in terms of um, human take, sea otter take. Uh, if the uh, sea stars come back with sea stars also. So it would be an interesting um, sort of more spatially explicit management technique. Um, are there use. are there mentors in your life who uh, you look at and, and say, oh, I want to be here in, in five years, 10 years, um, people who you really respect in the same field? Uh, yeah, I I definitely respect a lot of um, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game divers who will go the extra mile to, you know, like uh, up, upload uh, their data after a long day of diving and anyone in particular really who's who's been an influence on you? Um, I'd say uh, Kyle Hebert is really uh, helpful and he's he's often helping me just with writing grants and, and like with sending me papers of abalone um, around the world and it's he's a really great mentor he's he helps with commercial dive fisheries he's actually i think the director of the commercial dive fisheries program at alaska department of fish and game and, and he was really just fine with me jumping on board on the kestrel with the whole crew and all of these trained divers going out for a couple of weeks in alaska in the middle of nowhere and i thought that was an awesome risk that he was willing to take with me as this young female uh, diver. Um, and it was just all, all guys on the boat. And I was like, cool. All right. You trust that I can do this. I trust that I can do this. It's a very, (laughs) it's a very cool culture of marine biologists, oceanographers, like everyone, everyone who commits their life to this kind of thing loves the ocean. Yeah. I have a, a friend named Dr. Jamie Gove, who's an oceanographer for NOAA. And he tells me stories about going out on these, these ships with NOAA out to the Northwestern Hawaiian islands, like Jarvis that are completely unimpacted. There's no humans around. And he studies coral reefs and to be able to go out there with a group of friends to an Island that's uninhabited, dive all day, take data and like really be at the forefront of um, an exciting science. Uh, just it seems like a cool a cool life to me. Yeah, I've I've always thought like oh if I wasn't doing this like in another lifetime if I was better with math and science I'd go out there. <laughs> uh, That'd be a good time. It is definitely a good time. I think a lot of us have these like st- you know the Wes Anderson's. St- the life aquatic mm-hmm. the Steve Zizou sort of complexes where we're just kind of out there doing our science seemingly putzing around but actually doing like really really amazing work and um really working hard but it's definitely the you can't beat the scenery sometimes or just for me being underwater um is is so freeing it's so wonderful and and you kind of get your sense of place too, sort of definitely out of comfort zones, especially when something like a sea lion comes and just like whips past you and you're just yeah. exactly, I'm like, whoa, okay, you're big and graceful and I'm an awkward fish. I get it. But like, it is really, it is something else definitely getting to work in that environment. And, um, I think it only makes me appreciate it more and yeah. want to work towards the good of that environment yeah our time is limited here and and we may as well spend it doing something you love in environments that inspire awe mm-hmm. yeah. um uh, we can get going soon here but i wanted to ask you a little bit more about sea otters because these little fuckers are everywhere and they hiss at me when i go surfing and you i've know, even, I I've even had one perspective i've even had one I, like, grab onto my leash and i i couldn't get it off it 
It bit on my <laughs> leash and I was paddling around with this little shit for like five minutes. Wow. So they are aggressive. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> Long keep, story short, they're keep, aggressive. <laughs> keep your friends closer and your enemies closer. Let's talk about sea otters. I, I have to say, I really appreciate this perspective because so many people look at sea otters and they're just so cute and cuddly and furry and fuzzy. And, and then they go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they yap at each other and they do really sort of obscene things behind closed doors. Um, they're, they, they're, they're, they're rapey. They're a little, they get a little rapey. <laughs> it's unfortunate truth of a weasel. You know, they're an animal and they're in the ocean and they're, they're eating three times their body weight every single day. And, and yeah, and you can tell the males from the females based on the female scratches on their nose. That's like, that's from the males fighting them basically. Really? Yeah. They're aggressive little, little guys and their life is not particularly easy because they're out there and they, they don't have any body fat it's all about them fluffing their fur and looking adorable of course but they are weasels and they they do i've also had some pretty not fun experiences with sea otters and is it true that the reason oil spills are so uh detrimental to sea otters is because the oil slicks take away their waterproof fur and um, i've i've heard that they, that they can freeze to death Oh, and I that's, could believe that's the that. I don't so, actually know. I'm going outside with a can of oil tomorrow. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, that I'm is a taking, thing. They actually... Taking those little bastards down. <laughs> People have, have uh, suggested to put a bounty on sea otters in Southeast Alaska because they were so for this dive fishery. This fisheries was like a big moneymaker back, back in the late 70s, early 80s. People were making their living off of abalone and then sea otters came in and I'm like okay well both of us but but sea otters definitely do impact environments as soon as they come in they do take out quite a few of the urchins quite a few of the crabs and it's um they are and they're pesky too you know they're weasels so there there are bounties out there that have been suggested and some people are quite for them and but and you said that they got uh hunted to extinction or almost to extinction yeah. in, in certain areas when did this happen in the 1800s yeah in tell me the tell 18... me a little bit about that yeah it's this uh sort of sicko is the russian American for, for research capital. for my own research yeah, for per, your personal purchase <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you just need to be the russian american fur company and you can get all of the seattle access that you need and that will know you're gonna so, see me out there on a stand-up <laughs> paddleboard with my compound bow and a can of oil um, like, Kyle, what are you doing nothing <laughs> don't worry you take some back as don't long worry as you about use it. it all <laughs> actually i have had sea otter and i have to say i like it more than abalone really 100 mm-hmm. percent. so you can still hunt sea otter in uh, do tell okay i can't hunt sea otter okay. but alaska natives can and um i have a friend up in sitka and he actually makes beautiful um hats and vests out of uh sea otter fur and seal fur and he made me sea otter once and i was like very very intrigued by this i was like of course i have to try this and it wasn't gamey i mean think of the things they eat right like they but they are weasels so i was kind of very conflicted inside they're a very large weasel but they eat things like urchins and things like abalone things that people like to eat and so i was like okay i'll try it and it was actually quite nice what did it taste like um i'd say it tasted a little bit like venison but our the deer that i'm used to eating sick of black deer are a little bit sweeter a little less gamey than i think some of the larger deer down in the sort of um, continental U.S. Um, lower 48, as we like to call it so fondly up there. And it was like had little muscle fibers, sort of like, yeah. Okay. And, and uh, I want to get a little bit more of the history that <laughs> yeah. you were telling tell me about. So 1800s. Yeah. So the late 1800s. We, we were hunting them for their pelts. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Okay. Yeah. It was a huge fur company out of Southeast Alaska. And um, people would basically just kill full rafts of them and make everything under the sun most i think the biggest thing was hats actually they made made really nice like felt hats and things um so (laughs) cat is going crazy right now i'm listening keep going okay and so in the 1880s sea otters were pretty much completely removed from southeast alaska region and this 
Where, where do I go from here? <laughs> no, it's okay. I think that's kind of it. Is the basically only, they were all they the were only all animal I hate more than sea otters. <laughs> fucking cat. Just kidding. I love my cat, but just a privileged little shit sometimes. <laughs> Woke me up three times last night just to. Okay, I'm gonna go out now. Okay, I want to come back in now. Okay, I want to go out now. You guys probably can't hear our cat in the background, but it's going meow, meow. Thank you should meow. invest in a cat door. I'm gonna take this little <laughs> little critter out into the wild, showing that not all animals live so easily. Yeah, definitely a little, not. A little, little mentorship under a bobcat or something could do her good. <laughs> she might also bring back all of the animals in the neighborhood. <laughs> so this is a, a possibility. Um, yeah. Okay, so they were hunted to almost to extinction up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and now they are coming back and that's, uh, this conflict is well, resulting. Yeah. And so they, they were actually pretty much totally hunted to extinction and they were replaced by 407 or three, they're different numbers, but, um, 403 otters in Southeast Alaska, like from Sitka to Prince of Wales back in 65 and to 68 and they kind of reestablished and now from 403 guess how many otters there are how many there are like almost 30,000 otters in southeast alaska so they're doing fine <laughs> and people are noticing this and people do not appreciate this up there which is a very stark contrast to down in california where people quite enjoy the sights of sea otters around the sound so yeah um I like your perspective is why it's refreshing to me to hear like someone from California kind of understand sort of maybe more of an Alaskan perspective on the, on the sea otters. And, um, I think both are fair. Yeah. And you, you grew they up, are kind of cute. You grew up hunting in Alaska. Is that correct? I didn't personally hunt, but I would go out with friends. Yeah. And, um, I thought it was a great way to, to get out, um, and get off trail and see new, new sort of places in my own home and backyard but definitely uh snorkeling and collecting a lot of critters to eat that was that was my favorite thing to do good life good life well um is there anywhere where people can get in touch with you if they have more questions about abalone and all this fascinating science yeah they can email me at twhite1 at ucsc.edu or look me up online if you type in Taylor White and Abalone or Taylor White and Sika Sound Science Center. Pretty tied into both of those. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Aces and Twos by The Devil Makes Three. And if you want to hear more of their music, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf slash podcast, and click the link below Taylor's episode. Thank you again to everyone who donates to this podcast on Patreon. I rely on people like you to prioritize this podcast and get you these awesome guests. If you feel inspired, please head over to my website, kyle.surf and click the Patreon link. Just the equivalent of a cup of coffee every month really does make the difference. And once again, thank you to everyone who gives this show a rating on iTunes. It takes you one minute to do so, and it helps other people find the show. Until next time, my friends, get out in the water, give someone a high five, and have a beautiful day.